Coming up next on Moody and 40, we've talked before about what we would do if we could go back in time and make changes. But what if that's not an option? What would we do right now? Let's talk about it now on Moody and 40. So in a previous podcast, we talked a little bit about if I could go back, you know, 20 years, go back to right around the time you're 20, 18, 19, 20, that time in your life where you're trying to figure out what you want to do and where you want to go and how you want it all to unfold. And I think more often than not, that plan gets twisted and turned and pulled around. And by the time you get into your 40s, it probably doesn't look quite like what you envision. So, you know, in that previous podcast, I talked about, hey, what about when we get to right now? You know, what about in your 40s? What does that look like? And I've really thought long and hard about this podcast, this particular episode, because I didn't, I didn't want to just put a bunch of things out there that a list like, oh, go try this and go try that. Everybody's different. You know, what I like to do or what I'd like, you know, do professionally, personally, it's going to look a lot different than the people that listen to this podcast. Everybody's unique. Everyone has their visions and dreams and goals. So I thought that would be boring. And nobody wants to hear what my particular goals are, what I would like to do. But I became really fascinated by a piece that I ran, uh, read in the Harvard Business Review. And it's back from the summer of 2010. But man, it's one of those things that when I read it, it made so much sense as a catalyst to get you, the listener, to think about what this could mean for your life. So the title of it is How Will You Measure Your Life? And it was uh, written by Clayton Christensen, who's a professor at Harvard Harvard Business School. Within this, you know, he brings up a lot of great points, and I encourage you to read the entire thing. I'm going to use it as a guide for this podcast, and then add in a, a few of my own things as well. But you know, looking at it, this is talking about not so much what you're going to do with your life at this point, but how are you going to measure your life. You know, so I think looking at it from that perspective is a lot different than making a list and going over things and checking the boxes and seeing how that works. So the first thing that he talks about in this is how can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Obviously phrasing that is towards graduate students at Harvard Business School, but Let's take a look at that first statement from a 40-something-year-old business person who is making sure that they're happy in their career. Maybe you think right now, hey, I'm miserable in what I'm doing. Maybe you are happy with what you're doing. But I think it's a good time to check in with yourself to say, hey, am I actually happy with what I'm doing? How do we do that? You know, there's a lot of different things we could do. So let's Backburner that for a second. The second thing he talks about is how can I be sure the relationships with my family become an enduring source of happiness? I think we've talked about it before, but if we haven't, I'll touch on it now. 
you know, that, that word of balance, you know, and I've mentioned before in previous podcasts and giving credit to uh, a friend of mine that also does coaching, uh, Dr. Jeff Smith, you know, he talks about the word rhythm. And so to me, that's the perfect contrast between how can I make sure that I'm happy in my career? And then the second thing being, how can I be sure the relationships with my family, the people that I'm most intimate with become an enduring sense of happiness? It always seems that that seesaw starts to go. And the further you dig into your work, the further away from your family you get. And the further you dig in with your family, the further away you get from your work. It doesn't have to be that way. And this is what he's going to talk about, you know, in this case study. And then the third thing, which is kind of funny, you know, for just reading it for what it is, but it is true. How can I be sure I'll stay out of jail? You know, maybe jail is a little extreme, but how can I keep myself out of trouble? You know, he talks about two of the 32 people in his particular Rhodes Scholar class spent time in jail. Uh, one of them being uh, Jeff Skilling from Enron, but it's a really good point. You know, I don't think anybody sets off to go to prison, but you hear about white collar crime, people that are in different management functions. You make one bad decision, it snowballs into a series of bad decisions, and then suddenly you find yourself in a lot of trouble. So I think it's simple though. You know, looking at these three things, how can I make sure I'm happy in my career? How can I make sure that the relationships with my family are an enduring, an, an enduring source of happiness? And third, how do I keep myself out of trouble? So on the first question, let's tackle that. How can I be sure I'll be happy in my career? I don't think there's any way you can be sure. You know, that's not what he's saying, but you know, just my personal opinion, there's no way you can be sure. But one thing you can do is constantly check in with yourself to make sure you know, you're doing the right things, you're making the right decisions, what's made you feel happy, what hasn't made you feel happy. Uh, one of the people that he talks about in, in this article is from uh, Frederick Hertzberg, who says that the powerful motivator in our lives isn't necessarily money. It's the opportunity to learn, grow in responsibilities, contribute to others and be recognized for achievements. And I would agree with that. You know, how many times, I know I've done it in my career, you take a job for the money and you're miserable because none of those other boxes get checked. You know, it, there might not be a big opportunity to learn. There might be a big corporate entity saying, this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it and go at it, you know? So your responsibility isn't growing. You're not really contributing to others. And certainly, the company that comes to mind for me, I was never recognized for my achievements. It was always, what do you have for us next month? Not, hey, that's great what you did this month. Two very different statements. So looking at it from that perspective, you know, he goes further into this about having someone that would work for him in a company and that person just worked themselves to death, ran themselves into the ground, did everything for the company that they could possibly do. And then he envisioned, what is it like for that person when they leave here? And I thought that was interesting, you know, to have the, the foresight to go ahead and do that. But that person leaves for work in the morning, has a pretty, you know, strong level of self-esteem. And then they're driving home to their family 10 hours later and they feel unappreciated, frustrated, 
underutilized, demeaned. And imagine then what that does to your self-esteem. It's going to affect everything else in that person's life. And so that immediately shows how the correlation between number one, being happy in your career can just crush number two, having your family be an enduring source of happiness. Because if you continue to exercise those muscles every day where you've told yourself, I need to get out of bed and go work like crazy and then come home and spend, you know, kind of unconscious time with my family and then go back and do it again. Over time, that muscle gets exhausted and that becomes your reality. And here we are not happy at all. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good way to think through this and understand, okay, if what can I do that's different right now? You know, what can I do that would not make her want to drive home and feel that way. If you're in management listening to this, you have a direct input as to how that's done. You know, have you talked to your reports and about their lives, about basically building that trust and rapport? Because this goes on, and this is a seven-page case study. I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but you know, the the summary of it is if you take the time to get in and get to know the people that are working for you and they trust you. They're going to feel better about themselves, better about the job, better about you, better about the business. And all of that snowballs back in the other direction. Now that person that's driving home from work says, I love my job. I made an impact. I'm doing great things. And the money is probably going to follow that. So it moves on to you know, the next few things of looking at how those relationships are going to endure. Um, looking at from what he's talking about here, it's having a clear purpose in his life. He talks about all of the education that he's had over time. You know, a really well-educated guy, obviously Rhodes Scholar, teaches at Harvard Business School. But he could spend time studying, you know, different types of correlation and regression analysis, uh, applied uh, different types of economics. But what he talks about is he started at a young age in his college years, spending one hour a day really thinking about his purpose. And that obviously is not something any of us are going to sit down on a Tuesday and come up with on a piece of paper and check the box. We're just not. And so I admire this guy for doing this because when you're younger, it's easier to do. As we get older, you get a mortgage you're working more hours, you possibly have a spouse and kids and pets and responsibilities, and it just becomes a lot. But if you can set that tone early, it's great. If not, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about what you could do now. You know, I think go ahead and set that hour aside, or at least, you know, maybe it's not an hour, maybe it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but it's time for you to think about, you know, what is the purpose in your life? And you might do that by reading, by thinking, uh, if you're a religious person praying, you know, why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? And it's challenging. It's going to eventually, when you have your good days, you're going to think maybe good thoughts. If you have a bad day, you're going to say, this is a waste of time. The key is to stick with it. And so if you're able to stick with that, you know, it could be what he talks about, the single most useful thing that he's ever learned. 
you know, taking the time to understand, because if you think about it, it's easy for us all to take a job and do that job and come home and go through the motions. But if we just do that every day and we don't know why we're doing it, it's like going through life without a, without a rudder and you're going to get tossed around all over in that ocean of life and not be able to figure out where you're headed. And at some point you're going to have a day of reckoning where you say, what am I doing here? You know, and that probably is where a lot of us find ourselves now in our forties. So working on trying to find that particular purpose, you know, it's that choice and pursuit of a profession is one tool for achieving your purpose. But if you don't have that purpose, that's going to become hollow pretty quickly. So, you know, I think that's one big thing that I took out of this, uh, out of this article. And so, you know, going a little bit deeper into that, when you've really focused and studied and progressed in a career, subconsciously, you start to tell yourself that you've moved forward. You know, um, if you work in a company, you could have shipped a product, finished a design, completed a presentation. You know, you go out on the road and you close a sale. Uh, if maybe you go, went out and taught a class, you published a paper, you got paid, you got promoted. But if you take that time and energy in your relationship with your spouse or your kids, typically it's not going to offer you that same type of immediate gratification, uh, which he talks about in this article. So, you know, my kids, I love them to death, but they can be a nightmare at times. And it's a matter of keeping that framework of discipline and, you know, correcting them, but at the same time, showing them affection and loving them and finding that balance or rhythm, you know, to keep them in a space where they feel loved and nurtured and, you know, help, help them figure out life as we go. It's really not until way down the road that you can, you know, look at that situation and say, Hey, I raised a, a great son or daughter, you know, um, if we do that daily, you know, if we just kind of let things go daily and pretend there isn't something there, then chances are something not very good is going to come of that. So, you know, we're looking at, I think we need to look at our personal lives, according to this article, more like we look at our business relationships because we fight like crazy to close that deal and keep that relationship nurtured with the client that we work with. And, you know, it becomes an obsession to make sure they're happy because we get paid, you know, looking at that on the second part of this, making sure we obsess over our families to the point that they, they are filled with nurturing and love and happiness. And, you know, not every day is going to be easy, but neither is your job, you know? So making sure those things can persevere because again, this is where I do think the word balance is valid. The days that you have a bad day at work, hopefully you can balance it out by already having filled that family part of your life with as much of those good things as possible. So they can say, Hey, you had a bad day. Who cares? Let's have a good time at home. Probably the best thing that I can illustrate that with is a pet. You know, you go home, they don't know if you had a bad day, a dog meeting you at the door. They're just excited to see you. They're not looking at a bad day, a good day or whatever. It's always going to be that same feeling where they see you and they're excited to see you. So I think it's really important. And, and that really made a, an impact on me 
focusing on the second part of that. And, you know, another, I'll touch on two more things that came out of this article. Um, one, and this, this really hit home for me because I, I've noticed I do this and I'm sure a lot of you do as well, but he talks about how he played basketball over in the UK and there in Europe, you know, they don't do college sports like we do in the U S but they had a varsity basketball team and their team was incredible and they made it to the equivalent of like an NCAA championship game, but the game was supposed to be played on Sunday. And this, the author, Professor Christensen, he is a deeply religious guy and he made a commitment that he would never do anything other than dedicate time to the religious part of his life on Sundays. And he told his team that he couldn't play in that championship game. And a lot of people, you know, even when I read it, I said, Oh, come on, make an exception. I mean, that you're really good at basketball. You're kind of letting your team down in that, but he didn't budge and he didn't play and people were upset with him, but he was never upset with himself because he held to that principle a hundred percent of the time. And this is where it really hit me. Think about all the times in your life, whatever principle guides you that you've said, oh, I'll make an exception this one time. You know, maybe you're trying to lose weight and you ate an extra cookie or had a breakfast burrito or did something that was off the map or, you know, you went and you've always been honest taking a test and you cheat and you, it was remote and you looked up an answer on a test or, you know, there's a million things we could do where we'll say, Oh, we'll make an exception to this, this one time. Well, I admire what this guy did here because that couldn't have been an easy decision. And I think what we're, what we can take away from that is that he stuck to his grounds. You know, he stuck to his principles. He said, look, I'm not going to make an exception. And I think exceptions lead us into that third rule of keeping you out of trouble. I think those exceptions get all of us into trouble. You know, it could be something innocuous where you are doing a business deal and you say, well, you know, for this one time, I'll cut you a discount at this percent, even though I know I'm not supposed to, or, you know, whatever it may be. But then that customer comes back to you and says, oh, Chris, you gave me a 20% discount last time. Could you give me a 25% discount? this time and you have a quota and you're having a rough quarter and you say, Oh, why not? And then that person talks to one of his peers. It's also a client and says, Oh, Chris gave me 25% off. And that guy says, he's never given me a discount. And now I get an earful from that client. I mean, you could take that however, which way you want, but I think it's important, you know, on this third part of his whole theory here, to keep yourself out of trouble. If you're going to be principled in something, you do it all the way. You do it all the way and you don't make exceptions to it. Um, I want to practice this because I do it way too much. I, I give in with my kids. I give in with my wife. I give in with work. You know, I, I'm a people pleaser. If I, I like to try to make everybody happy and that can be a strength and it can be a huge weakness. But I think that is a really important thing for you to think about too is you know if i if i set all these goals and i have all these great ambitions but i don't want to hold myself 100% accountable to it and be principled in what i'm doing chances are that's going to fizzle out and not work so you know 
I think that's important. I think we, um, the other part that goes with that too, and this will be the last point that I make is humility. You know, so many of us in the business world, we think that we have to be the type A person and tell people how it's going to be done and be hardcore negotiators and win the deal and all these things. You know, what he talks about in his classes is humility, you know, having that high level of self-esteem and understanding who you are and what your purpose is. And the more people that he had in his classes that knew who they were, or the more people he associated with that knew who they were and felt good about who they were, they also tended to be the most humble. And it it wasn't necessarily, you know, defined by self-deprecating uh, behavior or attitudes with how you held others, but it just flowed from them. So, you know, that that type of person is going to be someone that you respect. It's going to be someone that you want to be around. It's going to be someone where you say, I really admire what they do. And I bet if you went through the exercise of the most humble people you know, they're also probably some of the people you enjoy being around the most. They're probably some of your best friends, your favorite relatives that you like to be around. And they probably have a humble eagerness to serve you and to learn more about you, more so than tell you all about themselves and to see what they can get from you. So, you know, I, I think this is fantastic. I read a few passages from, from his case study, but I encourage you to, uh, to get a copy of it. How Will You Measure Your Life is the title of it by Clayton Christensen. It was uh, written back in July of 2010. So with that, I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, look forward to some upcoming podcasts and hope you take care.